Amen. Good morning. Hey, it's a good day, yes? God is in control. The Lion of Judah. You, you guys are praying that the, the valleys would rise up and the mountains would go low? You know what that prayer is, right? That's praying that Jesus is going to come back soon. You know that, right? The Kidron Valley coming up and the mountains coming low, and Jesus is going to split the eastern sky and take his bride home. Amen? I'm excited, man. I'm going to work until Jesus comes, but, man, I am excited to leave this broken world behind when the time comes. Amen? But until that point, we know we need to continue about the Lord's business. And part of what God has us doing is living in community together. And such an important part of our community is our small groups. And small groups begin today. Yes? Are you excited? I'm excited uh, for my small group uh, to begin this week. And uh, we are very committed to you being in small groups. We believe that it makes an impact on your life. And when I say we, I mean we. I've got some people coming to join me uh, this morning, Pastor Reed, uh, Pastor Mike, Pastor Slam, Miss Kelly, and Derek. And we want you to know that with all of our hearts, we desire for you to be in small groups. So we're just going to, we're going to do it here. We're going to just get down here. And we are begging you, please, to consider being in a small group. What more can we do than get down on our hands and knees and beg you to consider being in a small group? Can you give these guys a hand this morning? Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I just, we, we're like, how can we just convince them that we're serious? Like, this makes all the difference. When you get in a community, you know, I know that you love coming together on Sunday mornings and getting your uh, chocolate mousse and, and sitting and listening to the Word of God and staring at me. I know how much you love staring at me. Um, but, you know, there's something more powerful than sitting in rows, and that's sitting in circles in a small group, being with people that know your story, that they're able to pray with you and love on you, and they know what's going on in your life. It's so easy to run in on Sunday morning and, and do your thing and then run out and not really connect. But small groups is the place where we make those connections. And today they begin, and it's not too late to sign up, to go out there, to get on the app. Uh, you can scan that QR code in front of you, get on the app, look through all the small groups. There's different types of groups, different nights of the week. There's also not just small groups. There's also discipleship groups. There's also activity groups uh, that you can get plugged into. There's also Sunday school classes that you can get plugged into. There's all different ways that we're trying to make it so that you can get with other people who will love you as they love the Lord, and you guys do this journey together. Amen? I don't, amen. Thank you. I'll take one more. Yes. I, I hope, I just, I don't know, I don't know what else we can do. We got testimonies over the last few weeks. We've got, and now we've got just people just begging. I mean, I don't know. It's like, uh, that's, that's where we're at. But we uh, so much want you to consider being in a small group, to just go by the table, just look, to just get on the app and scroll and just see if the Lord speaks to you. Um, and about getting in a group. I don't know. I don't, uh, I don't want to leave it because, I mean, today, I feel like today's my last shot. But I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. We're going to go. We are in a new series uh, beginning today, and it's called Defined. And, you know, we come out of a last, uh, last month, and our series uh, to kick off 2024 was the series of maintenance and thinking that, you know what, God wants to do new things in our lives. God wants to bring us into a new season. God wants to do new things. But before we do that, we want to connect with God and do maintenance on our lives. We want to make sure, are we connected to the Lord? And we talked about things like prayer and reading the scriptures and following the Holy Spirit and, and community we talked about last week. And we talked about all of those things. But, you know, uh, when we do that, when we connect with God, 
you know that the enemy is not going to like it. And there's going to be things inside of you that, that come to light that you're not going to like about yourself. You know, there's some, some things that rise up. And, and I felt very much the Lord, uh, the Lord and I have an interesting working relationship. I, I do work and I plan my series three to six months in advance. And uh, the Lord likes that. He's along with me. And then as we get closer, he says, I'm going to make some changes. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's a principle of life. I think that's what God does. God honors your hard work by getting involved and making changes. And, and I would much rather, I don't know about you, but I would much rather God just tell me up front, God, you just tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do that. But instead what he does is he allows me to do the hard work, and then he comes along and says, we're going to switch it up. And I'm telling you, it's a principle. I, I think whether it's in, in, in marriage, whether I think it's in parenting, it's in work, whatever you're doing, I think God loves to come alongside you. You know, you are sometimes asking we, uh, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to point, um, <laughs> We are sometimes asking God, God, you just show me the end. Show me the end result. And, and, and essentially what we're saying to God is, if you just tell me where to go, then I can stop talking to you and leave you, and I can just go do what you tell me to do. And God says, I don't want to do that. I, I want to come alongside you. So I'm going to let you work and figure things out, and then I'm going to come alongside you, and we're going to work it out together. And it's, it's awesome, and it's amazing. And in that process of working things out together, God said, first of all, you're going to do maintenance instead of the other thing you had planned. And then God said to me, uh, coming out of maintenance, people are going to begin to pray. They're going to begin to draw close. They're going to begin to read the scriptures. And in that, begin to feel less qualified, and, and they're going to see all of their failures because we draw close to the light of God, and we begin to see our smallness. We begin to see the ways in which we're not living up. And we, it's funny, we draw close to God, and then you think, well, I'm less qualified than I even thought I was because God is so amazing and so awesome. And so in this series, we're going to look and think about how we define ourselves and how God defines us. And we're going to look at some passages of Scripture that are in the Old Testament where, where there's supposed to be less grace, right, in the Old Testament. We think of it that way. And see the story of three women, uh, Ruth, Rahab, and Tamar. And see the way that God used them. It was so easy for them to define themselves in a certain way, according to their past, according to their personality, according to their characteristics. But God says, regardless of how you define yourself or how other people define you, God has a different way of defining us. And so we're going to begin in Ruth this morning. We're going to spend a couple weeks in Ruth and then one week in, uh, with Rahab. And then the fourth week is going to be Tamar. And I just want you to know, I'm praying that Jesus comes back before the fourth week. The story of Tamar is not uh, going to be easy on any of us. It's not going to be G-rated. Uh, that's going to be at least PG-13. I'm just going to try to keep it out of R uh, and uh, whatever, but we're going to do the best we can. Um, but we're going to begin this morning with the powerful story of Ruth. If you don't know this story super well, these four chapters of Ruth, man, this is an incredible, incredible story. So we're going to begin here in Ruth chapter 1 and read the first five verses as we sort of set the stage for what God wants to say to us today. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray together. 
God, we rejoice in who you are. Father, we lift our eyes, uh, Lord, to the eastern skies and, and, and declare, God, Maranatha. We long, Lord, to be in your presence. We long for your kingdom to be uh, restored on this earth, God. But, Lord, until that happens, we long to serve you and to follow after you. We believe that your ways are the best ways. And we pray that you would lead us and guide us, God. Open your word today to us. Share with us. Uh, direct us. Guide us, Father, as we desire to follow after you and be more and more like you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. I don't know about you, but over the years, I've discovered that there were things about my family that I didn't know growing up, right? There were things that happened in my family before I was born that nobody, like, talked about uh, as I became of age uh, that nobody wanted to talk about, right? And, I mean, the details are unimportant, but it was just interesting because, you know, over the years, you kind of think, why, does, why do my grandparents act, and why do they live where they live, and why do my cousins act that way, and why is my aunt that way? Does anybody, you, you, you ever, you, you think that? And then, like, later on in life, you begin to hear stories, right? And you're like, oh, like before I was born, <laughs> before I was born, there was some, some craziness, you know? I mean, things actually happened. I, you know, maybe I'm just like confessing my arrogance. I didn't think anything happened before I was born, you know? Um, but I mean, there were things that happened like before I was born and you're like, oh, that makes sense. That's why the family is this way. So often, you know, I'll have people come to me and the, you know, l older adults and they, they have older parents and they'll say things to me, about, you know, kind of try and look for counsel and say, you know, my parents are, are causing me an issue here and it's always sort of been this way and I don't understand. And my first question to them is, what was their life like growing up? Can you describe to me your grandparents, right? And, and you know, that, that's not a magic formula, okay? There aren't any magic formulas for fixing relationships, but a lot of times it helps to add context, right? It helps to understand, oh, well, yeah, I mean, my dad, when he was growing up, I mean, his dad was so hard on him. You know, my, my mom, when she was growing up, her family let her do anything, and she had anything she wanted. And, and you see that those issues kind of translated into their lives. And again, it doesn't fix it, but it gives you some context, and it gives us understanding to say, oh, I begin to see why they are how they are and how that came and that affected me. You know, and I'm sure that, that my kids, uh, one day they're going to be confiding in a friend or, or a spouse or a therapist. And, uh, and they're, they're going to talk about the ways in which I failed them, right? Um, you know, and, and I, I, I tried. I tried the best I could to raise godly adults who were going to be productive and happy. But I'm sure I failed in some way. You know, maybe you had parents like that, that that tried their best, but they failed in some way. Maybe you had parents that, that didn't try real hard and, and uh, didn't help you and, and uh, didn't, didn't put you on the, on the right path, uh, on the right foot uh, going into life. But, you know, Ruth comes as just a powerful story to show us all of these things that happened before like leading up to us, like we're born into a place. I mean, it's one of the harsh realities of life. Uh, it's one of the great philosophical questions, right? It's like, uh, I can't pick my parents, <laughs> you know? I mean, let's just have a moment of silence, right? I mean, I know, it's like you can't pick your parents. You can't pick what you're born into, right? But how do we then process it? If they tried hard, great. If they didn't try hard, you know, it put us at a disadvantage. How do I deal with it? How do I overcome it? Am I going to be defined by what I'm born into? Or am I going to figure out a different way? 
And Ruth, and the story of Ruth, shows us this so clearly and so powerfully. And it begins with a married couple in Bethlehem. This is the same Bethlehem where Jesus was going to be born. Same Bethlehem that means in Hebrew, house of bread, right? And they are there, and their names are Elimelech and Naomi. Now, Elimelech, okay, is, is like literally a Hebrew compound name that means God, or God is king. Okay, like L, and whenever you see L, it means God, whether that's at the end of a name like Michael or Daniel. The E-L, it means God, so you always see that. And Melech is the, is the Hebrew word for king, right? There's a song, David Melech, right, King David, okay? And uh, so this is what his name means. And Naomi, uh, Naomi's parents, they, they loved her, right? Naomi literally means my precious one, okay? And, uh, you know, that's, that's, if you guys know me, you know that's my Kate, right? I mean, the boys, take them or leave them. But, <laughs> but Kate is my precious one, right? She's a precious one. And so I just kind of identify with Naomi's parents. You know, they see their little girl and they're like, oh, that's my precious one, right? It's my precious one. And, and the story begins, and, and there's some struggles going on in Bethlehem, and, and th there's a famine happening in the land, and the famines don't usually just come, you know, uh, with a hard beginning and a hard end. They kind of come gradually over time, and the famine begins to come into Bethlehem, and they're living through this difficult season and this difficult time as they begin their family and they start having their kids. And as you have kids in this time period, you would name them according to a few different standards. First, you could name them something that ties into a characteristic of God, like Elimelech, right? That means God is king. And, and the idea is, you know, I name them that, and like every time they say their name, they're making a declaration, God is king. You can name them something that's a characteristic of the child, right? I mean, Naomi's born, and they're like, my precious one. You remember when Esau was born, and Esau literally means red, right? And you see a baby come out. Have you ever, you know, you've seen a little baby and just red when they're born and whatever, and they just are like, red, right? Or you can name them according to the circumstances. And we see this in different places in the scriptures. And we see this here in this. As, as Elimelech and Naomi have their two sons, they name them according to the circumstances. There's a famine in the land, right? Remember, 70 to 90% of the people work in agriculture. So if there's a low crop or no crop, 70 to 90% of the people are suffering economically. It's a rough time. And so they have two sons, and they name them Malon and Kilion. Malon means sickly. That's a great name, right? You know, I know there's uh, some, some women in the, in the church, there are some couples that are pregnant and they're looking for names and Malon ain't it, right? Uh, it means sickly. And then Kilion literally means annihilation, okay? And it's like, man, when the first son came along, things were looking bad. It's like the ground, the, the times are kind of sickly. And then by, by the time Kilion comes along, right, it's like, man, it might be over. It's just, it's just annihilation. Man, it's annihilation. And it's our first clue into the hearts of Elimelech and Naomi that they are bound by their circumstances, that they define life and they approach life by their circumstances. And look at this. The generation before, they, they defined their kids and they gave their kids names that pointed to God, right? God is king. But here in this generation, what Elimelech and Naomi are doing is they're defining their life based on their circumstances and the life that is around them. And we see Elimelech comes to the point where he's so just sort of bound into the circumstances and what's happening that he decides to move his family to Moab. 
Now, you remember Moab from the scriptures. You know, this is something that God forbade them to do, is to, to move into the land of Moab, because Moab has a terrible history with the people of God. It begins in Genesis chapter 19, and uh, maybe this whole series is PG-13, I don't know, but it begins in Genesis chapter uh, 19. No, no giggles, no nothing. Okay, so you uh, maybe you're not familiar with Genesis chapter 19. But uh, Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed, and Lot leaves with his two daughters. And if you remember what happened to Lot's wife, right, she looked back, she's turned into a pillar of salt, and there's all the memes. But now, not then. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, Lot and his two daughters are in a cave, and they think everybody's been killed by this firestorm on the earth. And so Lot's daughters get him drunk and asleep with him because they think he's the only man left. And uh, so they both get pregnant by their dad, um, which even in that culture, as bad as it was, was ugh, no, right? Like, it's terrible, okay? And they get pregnant. And, and so Lot's oldest daughter has a son named Moab, and he's the father of the Moabites. And the Moabites, I mean, God was not pleased with this whole situation, and, and God was, favor was not on them. So the Moabites resented the people of God uh, that followed the ways of God. They resented them, right? It turns out you'll get resented if you do the right thing sometimes, and like not sleep with your dad. Um, and, and so they resented the people of God. And so like when the, Egypt, when the um, Israelites are fleeing Egypt, the Hebrews are fleeing Egypt, uh, going to the promised land, the Moabites will not help them. And when they begin to get strong and they begin to, to, to move into the promised land, the Moabites actually try to curse them. If you know the story of Balaam and the donkey, right? Uh, he was trying to curse the people of God because the Moabites asked him to. And God comes against the Moabites and he curses the Moabites. And, and, and he says, you know, for 10 generations there's going to be a curse on the Moabites. And so when Elimelech gets to this place in his life, and he says, look, I'm looking around, and my circumstances are such. My circumstances are sickly. My circumstances are annihilation, so much so that I name my kids that, right? Like, how terrible, okay? But he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go directly against the command of God, and I'm going to move my family into Moab. I'm going to move my family into Moab. It's, a 50, it's 50 miles. It's a 50-mile walk. It probably took them a couple, three days to walk, maybe a little longer if they had a bunch of stuff. And they walk into Moab uh, against the will of God. And it's all because of the circumstances in their life. And you know, the reality of circumstances is going to be the most consistent form of temptation for someone seeking to live for God. Uh, honestly, you know, th there'll be some temptations come along. There'll be certain events. There'll be certain instances. And you'll be tempted to do something, right? You know, something happens and you'll be tempted in the moment. And then you'll kind of come back to yourself and you'll be able to resist that individual temptation. But circumstances that are, that are prevailing in your life, circumstances that push you and grind you and over a period of time, those become the most difficult temptations in our lives. You know, you're dating someone and you're, you're trying to live for God and, and then, you know, but the dating goes, you know, it kind of gets to the point, you're like, well, I'm going to marry them, you know, and then, and then it, it goes on and on and you're like, you're resisting temptation here and you're struggling here and you say to yourself, well, why don't we just move in together because it's going to save cost and then I don't have to resist the temptation and we're going to get married married, right? And that, that kind of temptation that builds up over time. You know, I've seen so many people who say, you know, that they, they're trying to make more money and they're trying to advance in their career. And, and they get to the point where they say, you know what, I don't really care what God says. I don't care about the church or our spiritual covering for my kids. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to move where I can make more money. 
And man, I mean, you know, everybody on the outside, you look at it, you kind of get it, right? You're like, oh, I'm going to move. But they don't think in terms of, and maybe this is just the pastor's heart speaking, right? They don't think in terms of the impact it's going to have on their kids spiritually or their family spiritually. They've got to know from the Lord. They've got no plan spiritually for their family. All they know is, I've been for years and years grinding and not making the money I want to make, and so I'm going to move and make more money. And I, I can just tell you, I could line you up and we could talk and I could change the names to protect identities and I could tell you so many families and so many people over the years from the time I was a kid until now that I watched them destroy their families and their kids. But it was a grind over time of like, I've got to move, I've got to make a change to make more money. And money is not all there is. I understand money is important, but money is not all there is. But it's a hard temptation to resist. It's a hard temptation to resist compromising. You know, you're at work and everybody else is cutting corners and they're doing stuff and they're breaking rules and they're playing fast and loose with the rules or whatever. And you see them start to make a little money. You see them start to get an advancement. You see things and you sit there maybe for a few years and you're watching these people compromise and the bosses all just kind of smile and wink and, and whatever. And you're sitting there and it's like, well, I could compromise too. And it's a hard temptation to resist. You know, it's a hard temptation to resist when your spouse is not nice. When your spouse is not godly, when your spouse is mean, when your spouse is, is hard on you, and we're, not to, we're never talking about abuse, right? We're never talking about enduring abuse. I know for a long time the church almost kind of rubber stamped staying in an abusive relationship because we hated divorce so much. If you're being abused and, and hurt, you, you need to get out, okay? But marriage is hard, and we don't we don't just run we don't just do we don't just make decisions because marriage is hard because all marriages are hard they have ups and downs and it's super easy when your spouse is not living a godly way and not treating you in a godly manner to to return the favor right it's like well why should i treat you in a godly way when you're not treating me in a godly way what a temptation that is but to resist those kinds of temptations are the most difficult kinds of temptations to resist i, I tell you i can i can walk through a situation. I mean, I'm not, you know, be careful if you think you stand lest you fall. I mean, I get that. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm saying this in all humility is I think I can resist a temptation like a one-off, you know, like, oh, you want to, you know, go rob a bank? I'm good. You know, like, like oh, you want to do this? No, I, you know, I'm good. I'm good. I don't want to do that thing. But over time, when it begins to grind you, and you begin to see it. It becomes a hard thing to resist and to continue to live in a godly manner. And Elimelech gives in. Elimelech gives in. He's like, I see this around and, 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 and my family is suffering and, and we're trying to endure and, and go. And he gives in and he goes to Moab. He directly disobeys the command of God, and this is such a powerful thing. And it was interesting because in the news this week, President Biden, um, he was trying to uh, put some restrictions on um, Jewish people that were settling in the West Bank. I don't know if you saw that, the West Bank settlers and everything, and he's trying to restrict them because in the Jewish and the Israelite mindset, where you live matters. And Elimelech knew what he was doing. When he, when he went to Moab, he knew what he was doing. He was disobeying the command of God, but he was giving in because of the circumstances had ground him to that point. Now, the Jewish people, they lived according to a hard narrative theology, which meant they thought if you did a bad thing, God just zapped you with a bolt, right? So when they hear, when they read this story and they say, Elimelech moved to Moab and Elimelech died, they stick their lips out and nod. Right? They're like, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He was disobedient to God. That's what happens when you're disobedient. Pow! 
right? And, and, and he dies, and they see that. He moved to Moab, and he died. And, and it says that he, he took his two sons with him, right, sickly and annihilation. I just can't help. I just, that's what, you know. Because, I mean, Kilion kind of sounds like a cool name, right? But then you realize, oh, you're naming them annihilation. But anyway. And he takes his two sons with him. And, and the scriptures tell us, we read it, right? They married two Moabite women. And, and it's like, are you surprised? Are you surprised that they married Moabite women? I mean, if you move your kids to Moab and you raise your kids and they go to school with Moabites and they hang out with Moabites and they date Moabites, they're going to marry Moabites. Huh? Okay. All right. So, so nobody's shocked, right, that they, that they marry these Moabites. You shouldn't be shocked, okay? I, I mean, I know that we think that we can witness date them in, right? That we think, well, we're Jews and we're living in Moab, and, but, you know, if we date them, uh, we can bring them in, you know? 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, do not be unequally yoked. Of course, that's a New Testament scripture, and this is, but, I mean, they had a direct command from God not to marry the Moabites. They were told they were cursed for 10 generations. Don't marry a Moabite, right? But they thought, well, I could date them in. I can get them, you know, I'll convert them, you know, uh, they're awful cute, right, looking, looking good, they seem to be interested in me, which, you know, I, anyway, so we'll, so we'll date them in, right, we'll get them converted, you know, I heard one pastor say, uh, you know, hey, if you, if you date somebody that's cute and they're not a Christian and you get married and you have kids and your kids are sick, don't expect them to pray for them, maybe they could rub some cute off on them, you know, but, but they can't, can they pray for your sick kid, right? The scriptures are so clear to us, tells us, I mean, don't, don't, I mean, if you, if you hang out with somebody and you date somebody, you're going to fall in love with somebody, you're going to marry that person, and you're going to be unequally yoked, right? And we see these two guys, and, and it's obvious, and they marry two Moabite women. And again, what happens to these two guys? I mean, they live for 10 years, and then they die. And the Jewish people reading this story would have been like, that's what happens, Right? That's what happens. I mean, we live in the age of grace. We're so used to grace. But they said, well, that's what happens. You marry these two Moabite women. Now, now Naomi in this story, I got to tell you, she's, she's not a good person, okay? I don't know if you've ever kind of looked up to Naomi or said whatever. She has a good name, but she doesn't live up to her name. Just like Elimelech doesn't, she doesn't either. She doesn't live up to her name. And, and she's a pessimist, and she's a nag, and she's negative. And, and uh, she eventually just says, hey, uh, now, you know, Malon and Kilion are dead. She's shocked by this. I named my kids sickly and annihilation. I live in direct disobedience to God, and now I'm shocked when bad things happen, right? Yeah? Oh, sorry. I'm just reliving some pastoral calls that I get. Um, it's bad. I shouldn't have said that, actually. That was, that's my bad. That's my bad. Okay? I just, it's hard. I don't know what to say. If you ever want to stump me, just call me and tell me I'm living in direct disobedience to God and I can't figure out why bad things are happening to me. And I'm just going to be like, I got nothing. I got nothing, right? And, and Naomi's in that spot and she's like, hey, you know what? Maybe we need to go back to the promised land, right? Maybe I need to go back to the promised land. So they start packing up. And Orpah and Ruth, they start packing up, right? And everybody's packing up, and they're going, okay? And, and I, I, this, is, this is Jason's version a little bit, okay? But I can just see Orpah's already having thoughts, right? She's like, oh, man, what am I doing, you know? I mean, I got this nag mother-in-law, and, uh, and I've got to go with her and, and all this. And, uh, and so they start packing up. And so Naomi turns to them, and she says, listen, you guys don't need to come with me. I can't give you, not yet, uh, I can't give you a kid or, or anything, 
thank you. Um, I, I can't have a son, and I can't do any of the, you know, I can't give you a son, I can't give you a husband. You need to go back to your, to your families. You need to go and just hope for another husband somewhere along the way, right? And Orpah, right, she says, cool. And she goes and she starts a TV program and it blows up and then it's just a whole, it's a whole other story, right? And, and Ruth says, no, I'm not going to leave you. And, and listen, listen to what Naomi says to Ruth in this moment. She doesn't say something along the lines of, come with me, even if you die husbandless and it's just me and you, we're going to serve the true living God. Listen to what Naomi says to Ruth. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. So dictated to by the circumstances in her life that she cannot, even though Ruth is there literally begging. Imagine somebody comes up to you and they're like, they say, tell me how to give my heart to Jesus. I want to give my heart to Jesus. Will you tell me, right? But the barista didn't give you your coffee at the right temperature. And you're like, my life is terrible. God has betrayed me. Why would, why would I tell you about Jesus right now? I mean, God is not even with me. And, and maybe the barista giving you your drink at the wrong temperature is a little bit too, you know, narrow. But what do we do so often? It's like I'm walking in these circumstances of my life. Things aren't going great for me. And so I can't, am I even going to tell other people about God? I mean, what does Naomi say here? Go back to your gods. Do you know the god of the Moabites, Moabites was Chamoth? And Chamoth required child sacrifice? And Naomi says, you see these circumstances in my life, everything's not going my way, so go back to that God. And Ruth is here in this moment. And I just want to tell you, I mean, Ruth has to make a spiritual decision in that moment. First of all, she's, she's a Moabite. So all of her people are against Yahweh and have been against Yahweh for generations. She, she, all the social pressure and everything is on her to go back, Right? I mean, the example that she's had of somebody godly is a horrible example. These people that have been disobedient to God, this, this person who is not faithful to God. And Naomi has to make a spiritual decision in that moment that's going to define her. Not based on the generations before, because the generations of the Moabites have been against God. Not based on even the example that she's seen from Naomi and her family, because it's a horrible example. But she has to decide in that moment who she's going to be. And you've You've heard this verse. This is the wedding verse. This is the, this is the one that you know, and it's Ruth chapter 1, 16 to 17. But Ruth replied, and I want you to hear it in context, okay? Ruth replies, hear it in context. Don't urge me to leave you to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me, my bones are going to be buried on your bones. You see that Lord there? It's in all caps. You know what that means? That means it's the word Yahweh. And Ruth says, may Yahweh judge me. She is turned in that moment. Here's this woman who is, by definition, a Moabite, by definition, a widow, so she's used up in that culture. Many of the widows became prostitutes in that culture. 
She's been rejected, basically, by her mother-in-law, who's supposed to be this God follower. And yet in that, she makes a decision that she's going to define herself. She's come to believe that Yahweh is the real God. And she's going to define herself as one who, despite the generations before, despite the people around her, she is going to pursue God with her whole heart. And we believe that our past defines us. And we believe that our characteristics define us. We believe that our personalities define us. But the truth is, it's God who defines us. And if we decide that I'm going to lean into him, then that's the decision that's going to be made. The Moabite people were cursed. How does Ruth get grace? It's because each of us stand before God on our own account. Oh, at some point, it doesn't matter about your parents. At some point, it doesn't matter what characteristics you have. What matters is where's your heart? What is your decision? Am I going to serve the Lord? And Ruth stood there in the midst of that. And she said, this is what's going to define me. So maybe you've done some reflecting over the last few weeks and praying and maybe some things have come up in you and you've said yeah but my past is here and my abilities are here and these are the characteristics that define me and you think well God can only forgive me to this level right God can only use me to this level God can only redeem me to this level our level that God brings us to is defined by Jesus it's not defined by us what you achieve in your life and I achieve in my life is defined by our obedience to God, not by anything that has come before. God defines us by our obedience, not by our past, not by anything else. So as you draw close to God, the light of God, and maybe you feel smaller, you remember how he defines you. Through Jesus, through your obedience, it's not about your past, it's not about your parents, it's not about anything else. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? God, as we come to you in this moment, Lord, we know that the enemy will often remind us of failures. God, to the point where we relive those failures and we go through them. God, as we seek to draw closer to you, it seems that bad things happen and it seems that bad things come to our remembrance and it seems, God, that as we draw closer to you, it seems like we feel less worthy. And I pray, God, that we can see and understand it for what it is. Lord, that we can see and understand, God, that you invite us into your gloriousness. Your gloriousness does not condemn us. Lord, because of your death, because of Jesus, we are invited in. We are not ruled out because of our past or because we don't measure up to somebody else or because something else doesn't define us and isn't exactly how it should be. God, I pray that you would give us the boldness of the Lion of Judah in our hearts, O oh Lord, to know, God, that we can accomplish great and mighty things through you. Lord, that we can make the decision that Ruth did. Father, in this situation, we can decide. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter about the circumstances of my life. I choose to serve and follow God. I choose to serve and follow God. Your ways are the best ways. We worship you, Lord. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together this morning.
Our prayer team is coming at this time and they would love to agree with you in prayer over any needs that you have in your life. Maybe you've been praying on your own and, and not seeing anything, not hearing from the Lord. The, Jesus told us there's power in agreement. And as we dismiss and people head that way, nobody's gonna see you come this way and just say, will you pray with me and agree with me in prayer? Maybe you have a meeting this week that's an important meeting. Maybe somebody in your family is suffering. Maybe you're suffering and you need relief. There's power in prayer. There's power in prayer. If week after week, you just run out the door and then you look back and you say, God, why aren't you hearing me? I wanna tell you, maybe you need to accept an invitation one week to come and just pray with somebody and find that agreement, amen? Lord, I pray your blessing on your people as they go from this place, give them peace that passes understanding. God, a peace that's so strong that it overrides their circumstances. So much so that people around them take notice and they come and they say, hey, I see you're going through this, but you still seem grounded. What's the answer for that? And our answer will be, it's Jesus. It's Jesus, he's giving me peace. Even though life might be falling apart at the moment, this isn't the whole story. And Jesus is giving me peace. I thank you for that peace. I pray your blessing on your people now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Peace be with you.